your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. James, what's up, man? We've been covering the Major League Draft, and it's about a week away. I Yeah, it's like finally here. Like, I, like I feel like we've been covering the draft for like two months because, yes. well, they moved it to July, and everybody hates it. And, you know, we're going to talk to Joe Doyle about it later on in this episode and we talked to Carlos Colazzo and you know a lot of you know Burke Granger and a whole bunch of other people and yeah executives don't really seem to like it and you know I even heard it mentioned today about the trade deadline and you know on your station Danny Parkins kind of mentioned when they had uh, John Morosi on it's like you know I haven't heard much trade talk and I just kind of feel like for people that like aren't as tuned in or aren't paying attention. It's it's because like this draft is coming and everybody's so busy that there is no trade talks right now. So after this draft, it's like 10 days or something. I think we're going to get a ton of rumors and it'll be awesome. Like as always, I just think they crammed a bunch of stuff into July here and it's still, uh, I'm still getting used to it for sure. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that James. It's important to note like the significance of the draft and where it's placed and like the amount of time invested in it. So with, the trade deadline on August 2nd this year, I mean, that's pretty significant. And we hear from Joe talking about why it is such a hassle for organizations and why it impacts trade deadlines. So I really implore the listener here, please, I'm talking to you, to listen throughout the episode because Joe gives one-of-kind insight, super informative, as well as all the other guests that we had, James just mentioned them, covering the draft. We're leading up to the draft, and there's all the information available right here on the Future Sox podcast. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. James, we wanted to start, you know, you just, you got stuff to say, and there's opinions to be had, and I need to hear you tell me your opinions. Yeah, so like part of what we do, like this is cathartic for me in a way, just because like as a lifelong White Sox fan, like we get to talk about prospects and like, yeah, it's not great all the time. Like they had the 30th rank system, but there's like good stuff happening, right? Like th- we kind of were at a distance. Like we we joined with Sox Machine and I love it. And those guys are great. But this is a moment in time where I'm happy that I'm not them because Mike, I hate this baseball team. Like I just, it it offends me. And obviously like, yes, like Tony La Russa is like a, a big part of it. It's like a dark cloud over everything, but this team just like does all the stuff that I hate or they don't do, you know, stuff that I like, right. They don't hit homers. They don't walk. They don't work counts. So they don't walk, right. They, they don't run the bases. They walk too many people like on the pitching staff, they play bad defense. And like, it's just frustrating. And like, I've said stuff along the lines of like, man, I wish they would just be like buried. I honestly like don't think I feel that way, but like I don't, I just don't want to be like 500, right? It would be, I feel like it would be so much easier for people if it was like, okay, they're 12 out or they're in the AL East or the AL West and we could just like stop paying attention to this, but they're just like pulling us back in. So as of this recording, they're 81 games in and you can, chime in here too obviously but like they should be able to like turn this thing around because they have talent but like they're they're just bad and I hate watching this team and it's so frustrating and like I'm not on a daily like regular White Sox podcast and like I'm happy about that I really am but like (laughs) man I think like somebody other than my wife should hear this and like I'm not you know like I'm pretty mild-mannered watching this team like i i don't let stuff that i can't control affect me so like my life is like i'm fine right i just wanted to enjoy watching this baseball team and i don't because i hate them and like i liked a lot of the characters but this is one of my least favorite white Sox teams of my life and i can't stand it and shout out to Risa. yeah james i mean this is Something that we were hoping would be rectified at the start of 
2022. And, and I mentioned that because when they got eliminated from the postseason, the White Sox were criticized for the lack of fundamentals. And it, it goes back to fixing what you can control, the small things that lead to greater things that ultimately influence the outcomes of games. And the White Sox don't care about doing those things or they just are incapable because they're bad baseball players right now. Not saying that the talent isn't there, but there's a person in that uniform and human beings go through things on a day to day. And it's not easy to hit a fastball and it's not easy to figure out how a pitcher attacks you. And especially with the way the game advances on a day to day basis with the way teams can beat you and find ways to beat you. It's not easy, but this team is totally underachieving and to see them fail the way they're failing is disheartening because we are asking questions right now, James, and whether or not the White Sox should be sellers at the deadline. That should never come up in a competitive window where you invested in Yohan Moncada, Luis Robert, Aloy Jimenez, guys, Tim Anderson, who signed lucrative contracts relative to their experience. These are core pieces of the roster that are just not showing up on a day-to-day. And then, on top of it, you have position redundancies. Guys playing in left field that should be at first base. All while Leary Garcia is playing every day. And Leary's, on, Leary's playing, one, because of the injuries, but two, because Tony Larusa thinks that player is valuable. And it all comes back to him at the end of the day. Because you, you think about what this team would be without him at the helm, you, you just wonder, because that's all we can do. But I think, really, it does come down to accountability. Starts with the manager, and it trickles down to all the players and the leaders of this team. We're not seeing it, James. We're not seeing it. Yeah, so, I mean, it starts with the manager, like, on a day-to-day, but then you get into, like, the whole organization. And, look, we're, we're not doing this on this podcast. It's only going to be, like, a couple more minutes, and then we have Futures Game and Joe Doyle. But, I mean, like, I mean, I see the calls every day to fire Rick Hahn on Twitter, and it's like, I'm with you if, like, you, you think that's, like, going to fix it. But, like, I'm here to tell you it's not. This snake rots at the head, and, like, there, there's nothing that we can, yeah. we can do about this, right? Like, you can't, you can't change the owner. And everything is under that. And I just see like, okay, fine, fire Rick Hahn and promote Jeremy Haber. Like wh- what is suddenly going to change? Like we've talked about this. Like the one change you can make is the manager. And honestly, that might not change anything either. Right. But it's a, it's something, right? You have to see if like the the lethargy just like, you know, they, they just like this team can't hit. Right. They need to find a way to hit. And while I do think Tony's a problem, the biggest problem is they don't hit homers. And if they did, they'd probably be in first place right now. And, you know, there, there was a tweet today, I think it was Jay Kuda, uh, you know, just talking about how much the lefties have struggled against right-handed pitching. And it all comes back to Moncada and Grandall's struggles. Like, if those guys were even, like, like what, 75% of their normal selves, like the White Sox are probably in first, but you'd mm-hmm. still have all these other issues that are being exposed on a day-to-day basis. They would just be masked because the offense hits like they're supposed to, and they would get exposed eventually. The, the organization is not in a great spot, but they do have enough talent, I think, to pivot. That's where like a full-on like selling is, is nuts. Like They're, right. they're not going to trade anybody under contract, right? And I doubt they do. I, I doubt they they sell it all just because I think they're stubborn and I have no indication that Tony LaRusso is leaving anytime soon. So I, I think they'll just push in and try to keep winning and business as usual for next year too. You know, maybe it's like Johnny Cueto or somebody, but I mean like that, that's not happening, but man, it just seems like a fundamental change somewhere to this roster is necessary. And like, I just don't think it's something that can be done in season. And unfortunately, there's 81 more of these baseball games to go. Gotta love it. And the team as a whole is lethargic. I'm watching them have very little enthusiasm. <sighs> Do I believe in this team uh, on a day-to-day? When I watch them go down three runs, I'm like, it's over. I shouldn't feel that way. And to your point about the manager, how significant of a change would it be and how much would it fix some of the problems? I think it would help. 
it's a step in the right direction if Tony La Russa is not the one that players have to answer to. So that's like points well taken, James. Your frustration, I think, is felt by all Sox fans listening to this podcast. We really appreciate you listening, the fan, because that's what we are. We're fans. We love the game. James, though, as we move away from this uh, lovely topic, let's talk Colson Montgomery and Oscar Colas. Interesting that Colson Montgomery is not included in the Futures game, but Oscar Colas is. Is there a reason why Colson Montgomery is not, who is now a top 100 prospect? So there's there's been some pushback against this. Like Keith Law wrote an article for The Athletic stating emphatically that he thought Colson Montgomery should be there. He said Colson Montgomery, and then, uh, you know, the name escapes me right now, but the fourth overall pick from the Red Sox last year, th- those are the two best shortstop prospects possibly in the American League. And they're not on the roster. Um, Oscar Colas is. Colas makes a lot of sense just because, you know, he's only at high A, but he should probably head to Birmingham soon like we've talked about. That that makes a lot of sense. The game is NL versus AL now. Somebody passed along to me that guys typically only go to the Futures game once. So that was maybe the thought on Colson Montgomery is that, like, he'll probably be there next year if he's what everybody thinks he is. So they didn't send him for his first full season. I'm not totally sure whether it's like up to the white Sox or up to major league baseball, but hopefully uh, the the chip stays on his shoulder and, you know, he forces his way into next year's futures game. It's not that big a deal, but he's, you know, he's had a mm-hmm. really good year and I kind of thought maybe he would be rewarded for that, but you know, it'll be fun to watch Oscar Colas up against uh, some of the best prospects in baseball. Join us every Tuesday for the Future Sox podcast, just like you're doing right now. We release new episodes weekly, and it drops on Tuesday morning. Have it ready for you. That's James Fox, my partner at JamesFox917 on Twitter. My name is Mike Rankin. I'm at Rankin906. We have Joe Doyle of Prospects Live coming right up, previewing the 2022 Major League Baseball Amateur Draft, what the White Sox want to do at 26. He gives us a name. Stay tuned for that. It'll come at the end, so you got to stick around for this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Here's Joe Doyle. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Please welcome on Joe Doyle of Prospects Live. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Doyle, M-I-L-B. That's Doyle with a Y, D-O-Y-L-E. Joe, it's great to talk to you again. The last time we spoke, you got the pick right in Colson Montgomery. We'll talk White Sox here in a little bit. We're going to talk heavy Major League Baseball draft. Those who tune in to this episode, I'm sure, are familiar with your work because Prospects Live has just grinded, grinded its way to one of the most credible sources, resources out there for Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, and and scouting information. Can you just give us an update on the growth that we've seen from your platform over the last year plus? Yeah, man, I I, uh, I appreciate the kind words, and um, you know, we we have seen some growth. I think you know our viewership on the on the website has tripled over the last eighteen months. Um, but frankly, like I I don't like giving too much credit to you know. Frankly, to me, it it all boils down to like Tyler and Ian and Will and Brian and, you know, all of these different writers and scouts that we got, you know, capturing footage and and meeting people and networking. Uh, You know, they're the they're the lifeblood of the site. So without them, it's it's not really anything. But yeah, man, appreciate the kind words. We're we're definitely on an upward trajectory. And uh, it's it's nice to hear that people are are taking our content and our, uh, you know, our, our articles as valuable information. It's valuable because you have boots to the ground and those who see 
prospects and report them with their own eyes. It's not watching video from your couch or whatever the case may be. So again, prospects live out there grinding. They're doing everything that you're looking for as a fan of prospects and Major League Baseball in general. All right, so let's talk about the draft. Coming up in July, it's been pushed back. I'm going to get your thoughts on how you feel or maybe your perspective on what you think organizations feel about the draft being this late into the season. However, let's go with Baltimore first because they pick first. My partner James Fox told me, if I knew who Baltimore would take at number one, I would have a pretty good idea of how the rest of the top 10 picks would fall. Is that kind of how you're feeling as well with the way Baltimore has been approaching this, their draft, I guess, over the last several seasons? Yeah, you know, I, I just think as a whole, I've been doing the draft here. This is year six for me, um, and I can't remember a draft after the, you know, the top guy that has been so wide open. Uh, I, I was talking to a couple of other guys today. I said, you know, picks two through ten are pretty much interchangeable. Uh, I could see number ten going number two. I could see number two going number ten, and then eleven through forty are interchangeable. Like I could see. Uh, a guy like Justin Campbell going as high as as number eleven. Now that won't happen, but that kind of just points to the value of those picks in terms of in terms of Baltimore. You know, I just think head and shoulders, Drew Jones is so much better than or or more projectably checks so many more boxes than every other player at the top of this class. Um, but you know, beings it is a year where Baltimore picks uh, at the very top. It, it I'm sure it uh, lines up for chaos. I doubt we'll know who they'll take until uh, you know the day of the draft and. Uh, if if history serves us correctly, uh, we probably won't know until about 10 minutes before the pick is made. So, um, you know, I, I think they're going to go with Drew Jones. I, I've definitely heard a couple other names uh, thrown out there, but I just think he's he separates himself so much um, that I think it'd be uh, paralysis by analysis taking anyone else. I agree with you. I, th- you know, I think it's just like everybody's kind of guessing, right? And and I think people like publications do so many mock drafts now that they don't want to just put Drew Jones one like the whole time. On the other hand, Baltimore has looked to cut deals and, you know, Elias did it in Houston too, but when Adley Rushman was the number one player in the class, he, he took him. And, and this year, like, I feel like with their bonus pool, if you took Jones, I think they can still do what they want to do at the other spots. Do you agree with that? Or, I mean, cause I mean, it, and the thing is like too, with the, the cutting, like if they're going to cut, it's gotta be like Tamar Johnson because he might not go until six right like you're not gonna you're not gonna get a discount with with holiday or one of these other guys that's gonna go two or three anyway yeah i wouldn't think so um i think that if drew jones gets past the first pick i don't know where this is gonna spiral i i I was talking to a scouting director today and we were just kind of chopping it up a little bit and he said i i haven't written this anywhere so this you know this would be kind of a exclusive thing for you guys what if what if the mets were to float drew jones down to eleven? with a $9 million bonus promise. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if, if he doesn't go number one, then the only other team that can really afford him, if he is throwing out a massively large number, uh, would be the Mets who have like 10 and a half million to spend in the first round alone. So I would, I would expect him to go number one. Frankly, I think he's going to go to Baltimore. I think he's going to get a little bit less than full slot, like eight and a half, 8.3. And I think it's going to be, I think this is going to be a whole lot more noise than, than it probably should deserve. I think it's going to be pretty chalk, but if Drew Jones is, is, you know, positioning himself to get full slot uh, in the first pick overall and Baltimore isn't willing to go that direction, I think it could go a pretty chaotic in terms of, you know, what can they do with the rest of their, yeah, Baltimore has so much money to spend in this class. I think they could handsomely pay Drew Jones and still, uh, you know, put together a massively impressive class through comp a two and three. So, you know, one of the talking points of this draft too, is just, and it's, and it's so, I feel like it's taken forever, right? Cause it's July. This is the second year we've done this. Um, I still don't like it very much this late, but it was like just the talk of the lack of college pitching. And there's probably not going to be a pitcher that goes in the top 10. But I feel like recently, you know, and and this is what I want you to address, is like Kumar Rocker's pitching. Cade Horton has crazily moved up boards, obviously. You know, uh, Carson Wissenhunt's pitching. Connor Prelip is healthy. So, I mean, does that change the landscape a little bit? Like, I I feel like while no pitchers are going to go in the top 10, I think some of these guys, you know, are are actually going to be pretty solid and the pitching class isn't as terrible as we thought maybe like six weeks ago 
Yeah, I've been saying something similar to that for the last few months. I think this is one of those classes where, depending on where you pick some of these college pitchers, you are going to get some truly uh, extra value in that, uh, you know, there's some guys in this class that have definitive like front of the rotation number two upside like Kamar Rocker uh, for for all the noise that surrounds him he's still 94 to 96 touching 97 with a you know at least a plus slider and a show me change up I mean and, and a premium body if if the if the medicals aren't as bad as I think worst case scenario doomsday types of folks are saying that they might be um, landing someone like that at even pick 15 16 17 18 that's that's immense value and then you know, Connor Prelip, we don't exactly know what he's going to be, but, you know, he had a chance to be the number one pick before he got hurt. And uh, all, all of these guys, I mean, Peyton Pallett, Landon Sims, like there's a lot of guys that went down with injury this year and um, they might be picked, you know, outside of the top 20 and they might end up being front of the rotation type arms. So, um, yeah, I, I think when we look back at this class four or five years from now, oh, there's going to be quite a few big league starters. And frankly, there's probably going to be a couple of studs. And the fact that none of them will have likely gone in the top 10, I, I think, is um, is just a pretty unique aspect to this class. Yeah, so some of the guys you mentioned, I mean, Landon Sims, and like some of those guys were going to be clear first rounders, I think. And now they're definitely not going to be. And whether they go in the comp round or in the second round or whatever, you don't really think any of them are like a threat to go back to school, right? I, I feel like most of these guys are going to sign, but I, I was always curious to know, like, are they just like definite slot signings? Are they taking whatever teams offer at this point and just going pro? Like, what what do you think? And obviously, they're all different, but you know, your Peyton Paulettes of the world and Landon Sims and those guys, if they go like in the middle of round two, are they signing for, for that money? I, I think there's two arms that are hurt that have a definitive chance of going back to school. Uh, Cade Horton isn't really hurt. I mean, he's actually back and back to full strength, but I think it's going to take top 15. Maybe you might be able to swing him for top 20 money. Um, but that's an arm that, you know, doesn't have a huge track record. He's got like five good starts under his belt and, uh, you know, looking at three and a half, four million, I think, to to pull him away from school because, you know, he can go back to school. And if he repeats what he did over the course of a year at Oklahoma, he's going to be a top 10 pick. It's it's automatic. He'll be up there with Chase Dolander. The other one that I think is interesting is uh, is Reggie Crawford. Uh, he's he's the UConn lefty, but he's he's in the transfer portal. He's he's actually committed. It's not public. He's committed to a huge school. And if he ends up. Uh, you know, pitching there and, uh, you know, making money and, and really performing uh, in a big conference. And, and, you know, he's a lefty up to, you know, 100. You guys know all about lefties taken in the draft up to 100. Uh, he could be a top 15 pick in 2023. So those are the two that I expect have a shot of, uh, of not getting drafted or not getting paid and could end up going back to school. But I mean, I think most of these guys are, are ready to go pro. I want to take you back to 2020, two years removed from that. And if I remember correctly, seniors in college were eligible to play, right, again in 2021. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how that has impacted scouting across the league. I guess maybe it has more to do with the age of these types of players. Is this something that has any impact on the way the landscape, the talent landscape is? Are guys being overlooked because there's somebody older ahead of them, perhaps? That's a good question. You know, I think we're kind of at the tail end now of that evaluatory speed bump kind of being behind us. You know, those guys that missed all of 2020, that was an impossibly tough evaluation year. And uh, I would say the guys that were hurt during 2021, um, so the frankly, the Connor Prelips, uh, guys like that, guys that missed almost all of that season and then didn't pitch much this season are, are kind of the the X factors here, the guys that really don't have any innings under him. I mean, Reggie Crawford has like 16 college innings under him, and I, I think Connor Prelip is right around that too. But I would say, you know, there are some older arms that have kind of broken through this year that um, maybe were overlooked uh, during 2020 and 2021. I, Michael Knorr at Coastal Carolina certainly certainly stands out. But even, you know, back in those uh you know, to, uh, those days, 2020, you got guys like Landon Knack and you got older arms that, you know, break through in their fourth year. It's it's not terribly uncommon, but I do think we're kind of at the end of 2020 having a big impact on scouts. Here's another question for you. 
considering where the top 15 has a ton of bloodline projected to go, what's the strength of the first round? And separately, how would you evaluate the strength overall of this draft? Yeah, so I would say the strength of the first round this year is, is I mean, I don't think this is a terribly rich class. I, I don't think it's the you know, the best class uh, that you, that you'd write home about. I think it is full of quality big leaguers that aren't going to make a whole lot of waves in terms of all-star game appearances. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, Mike Yersturmski type, you know, good, solid players, especially on the college outfield side, Gavin Cross, Chase DeLauder, Jordan Beck. But I, I don't think there's many stars in this class. Um, uh, frankly, I, I think the strength of this class uh, is going to ultimately end up being the college pitching. And because of that, I, I actually think there's going to be a run on college pitching in the first round. And, and we might actually see some of these college bats uh, fall down boards a little bit further than than many anticipate. Uh, I, fr- you know, if you're asking me today, gun to my head, I, I think pretty much all of Kamar Rocker, Connor Prelip, Blade Tidwell, uh, Justin Campbell, Thomas Harrington, like I think all of these guys are going to go higher than where they are on most power ranking boards, just because you know big league organizations like the safety of pitching. They know how to develop pitching, and fringier college bats with question marks, uh, they're easy to say no to. So, I, to answer your question in, in a long winded way, I think there's a lot of quality in terms of you know college outfielders and certainly high school bats at the top. But I think, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, four or five years from now, the strength of this class probably lies in the college pitching. So something I found interesting is the, you know, the Kumar Rocker rule, even though like Kumar Rocker wouldn't have been eligible for the Kumar Rocker rule. But (laughs) so something I wanted to ask you is, you know, with the them getting more of their bonus guaranteed or whatever, if they subjected themselves to the physical, like I think we've talked about it a few times. I think most people listening know that rule by now. Do you think that's going to push more talent to day three? Because, I mean, if you have to offer these guys that much of their bonus slot, well, then you just like push them to to day three where it's 125K and then you're willing to give the 125K that doesn't count against your bonus pool. So we're going Mm -hmm. to get into the Sox philosophy. They've done this a ton. Do you think more teams do this where it's just going to be, you know, you kind of load your draft up into the top few rounds and then you're taking a bunch of cheap seniors because of a rule like this? Yeah, you know, I I wrote about this a few weeks back. Um, back at the at the draft combine, there were over a hundred guys, and they only invite three hundred. And there are there were some walk ons. There was about three hundred and thirty people there. And anybody that attends the draft combine and submits their medicals is eligible, despite the fact that they say top three hundred. Anybody that attends the combine and submits their medicals is guaranteed that seventy five percent of slot value. But I thought the interesting was interesting thing was talking to club officials. You know, over a hundred guys at the combine decided not to take the draft combine physical and submit their medicals. So uh, there's a lot of guys in this class, especially on the college side, that are unwilling to you know staple themselves in to a specific number. So initially, and I think on paper, the rule certainly suggests that it's going to push people down boards. Um, but I don't think that's the case. I think agents and advisors are, are telling their guys, hey, listen, if you don't submit a physical, uh, you give me all the negotiating power in the world to, you know, get you drafted, you know, like Frank Mazzucato was up at, up at the seventh pick overall. And we can get you more money than, you know, should you have been picked, you know, 45 or 50. I mean, look, look at it this way. Uh, a perfect example is Henry Bolt. You know, Henry Bolt is a, is a center fielder out of uh, Palo Alto, California. And he's being mocked to the Royals like crazy right now. Most people think Bolt probably fits somewhere in the 35 to 50 range. He's getting mocked to to Kansas City at seven everywhere. I don't know whether or not Henry Bolt um, submitted a a pre-draft physical, but wouldn't it be really appealing to a team like the Royals if he hadn't and they can get him for, you know, 68 or 70% of slot and, and, you know, really get creative with the rest of their draft. So in that regard, I do think on paper it'll protect a lot of the uh, you know high school guys and uh, guys that have you know medical question marks from being used as pawns, um, but I think ultimately things are still going to play out exactly the way they have in the past. I still think there's going to be upwards of eight to fifteen guys that you know get less than seventy five percent a slot because they just want more negotiating power. 
Let's take it to the White Sox angle now. And as Mike Shirley is entering his third draft and 2020 wasn't an anomaly. However, the pattern over the last two drafts have been pretty consistent. Went Garrett Crochet round one and followed that up with spending overslot on Jared Kelly. Then the next year, two prep players, one overslot in West Cath in the first round, also Colson Montgomery, which we'll give a shout out to in a minute. They sort of, uh, Mike Shirley's camp sort of stopped spending over the subsequent rounds following rounds one and two. I, I just wonder what that strategy does for you, how you feel about that, essentially spending a lot of your bonus pool across the first 10 on uh, specific picks and then kind of punting away some of the other ones in the in the middle rounds. I mean, I think that's all in the eye of the beholder. It just kind of depends on what your philosophy is. I think if there was a year that, you know, a guy like Mike Shirley would like to to spend more on one of his picks, this is, is, is a great year to do it with some of the, you know, extremely talented high school pitchers that should be there available in the second round. Um, but it depends on what he does with his first pick. I, you know, I give Mike Shirley a lot of credit. He He takes swings at high school pitchers and high school hitters. And, you know, I loved the Tanner McDougal pick. I, I thought Tanner McDougal, and I still think Tanner McDougal is going to be a really good pro. Uh, you know, hopefully he rests up and gets healthy here pretty soon. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, philosophically, if, if I was running a team, I would stay a little bit closer to slot uh, unless I absolutely fell in love with a kid that I'd like to take in the second round. And, you know, I interviewed Wes Kath and, you know, he don't, uh, donated a, a signed bat that we were able to raffle off for things. I mean, comes from just an incredible family a really good kid. And I can see how you don't want to, you know, fall in love with a player like that. Um, so, you know, I guess it, it all depends on the context, right? Is there a player that you absolutely have to have from the high school ranks in the second round? And if there is great, go splurge. But I think I would probably plan personally on going into each draft and, and at least the first, you know, unless you have a competitive balance pick, uh, the first four or five rounds, I'd probably stay as close to slot as I can, because I think there's a lot of value on the college side. So do you know how many teams like do this? Like I I hear from White Sox fans a lot that like don't understand the process, right? That are like, oh, they're going to get two players and they're going to punt the rest. And like, they didn't really do that. They signed Sean Burke like for 900K. They gave Tanner McDougal 850K. Then yeah, then they did it after that, right? How many teams do you think, and, and, and you're probably guessing, obviously, like do this like similar thing where it's like a lot of seniors in like four through 10 or five through 10. And then, you, you know, you are trying to get guys on day three though. The amount of teams that go over slot, over slot back to back in the second and third round and paid full slot with the first, first round pick is, is minuscule. Uh, maybe, maybe two a year. I mean, it's very, very slim. Um, so that's why, you know, last year's draft for the, for the White Sox was so unique. You know, they were way behind the eight ball going into the fourth round. So, no, I, I don't see very many teams going that route because, frankly, there is a ton of value, especially just on the pure college, you know, reliever type side. You know, there's a there's a million guys in college that are projected to be relievers that throw 97 and you can squeeze a lot of value out of that in rounds four or five, six and seven. There's a lot of those guys to be had. Um, so the fact that the White Sox decided to, you know, kind of go with. I guess just iffier talent. It's not even iffier. Like they went over slot in round five with Tanner McDougal. So they they punted four, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. That's that's extremely rare, and it doesn't happen very often. I, there are example like last year that the Marlins had Khalil Watson fall into their lap, and they had to go way over slot to get Khalil Watson. So they had to punt a few picks. But uh, I've never really seen too many other examples of the White Sox punting two thirds of the, you know, first two days of the draft to land, you know, three or four players. So that's interesting. So they're picking a 26, you know, they're, they're tied to lots of players in your latest mock over at, uh, at prospects live, you have South Carolina prep Tucker Tolman. You know, we've talked about him a lot on this show, hearing similar things, but then you also have Florida prep Roman Anthony. So I feel like that would be similar to what they did last year. They have the third smallest bonus pool, right? So for them to do that, that's going to take up a big chunk of it. Um, how realistic do you think that plan is? And you know, would that be 
sound strategy for them. I guess it kind of depends on who else is on the board at 26, but I mean, it seems to two more left-handed prep bats seems to make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, um, so that was more of us just hedging our bets because for, for, for me personally, and in, in talking to folks around the league, there is a lot of Tucker Toman attaching to, to Chicago. And, uh, there's also been periods, you know, of, of a couple of weeks where, uh, they're really attached to Roman Anthony and, you know, some of their brass has been seen out at Roman Anthony games back in the spring. But at the same time, you know, I've heard that Chicago is looking at going with a college pitcher in the first round and then splurging with that second pick, maybe going uh, for Roman Anthony with that second pick. But I will say this. I mean, if if you're going to get if you're going to take Roman Anthony, just knowing what a lot of us know he probably has to be taken in the first round because that kid wants a lot of money. You know, maybe they can find a way to take a college pitcher in the first round, like a Justin Campbell and save some money or, or a Thomas Harrington and save some money. Or, you know, maybe you can, I I really don't know the situation with Kamar Rocker, but I've heard Kamar Rocker attached to the White Sox as well. And um, I have a hard time wrapping my head around exactly how that sort of negotiation would go. I look at it this way, and I know I'm just talking about Kamar Rocker now for a second. If you're Kamar Rocker and the White Sox draft you, and let's say your guys' draft slot pool is $3 million. I know it's something around there. And you go to Kamar Rocker and, and you say, hey, we're going to give you 2.4, take it or leave it. I have a hard time looking at Kamar Rocker and the leverage that he doesn't have and saying he's not going to have to sign that deal. So maybe that opens up 600 k for a Roman Anthony pick uh, later in the draft. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, man, I've heard them connected to a lot of lefty preps with power. And then I've heard them connected to a lot of college pitchers. But at the end of the day, I think there are some, uh, there are quite a few teams that have been attached to those types of players. The Cardinals have been attached to that demographic as well. So um, like I said, this is a year where nothing has felt firm nothing has felt concrete and i know we still have a week and a half to go before the draft but um man everything feels pretty in the dark so you're mentioning college pitching and and it got me thinking uh, how relevant is a team's competitive timeline in relation to the draft like do teams man like next year or in two years we want to compete and we're soft at the starting pitching on our on our 40 man in our pipeline does that impact the first round? Does that impact draft strategy at all? Like, if you if you were in the front offices, would that matter to you? I mean, it. I would say if you put it on a weight scale, your competitive window probably plays about thirty percent of it, and then you know seventy percent of it is going to be uh, best player available, how you evaluated these guys, you know who fits. But there are some examples. I mean. If you look at the Angels, their competitive window is is slamming shut rapidly. Uh, you can't think that that team with the players that they have on it uh, is going to be in a position to compete maybe past next year if they lose Otani. So a team like that, you know, I look at and I say, maybe Landon Sims makes sense for them. Maybe Kamar Rocker makes sense for them. They need a pitcher that can move fast. So in that regard, yeah, like that team does. And I think with a team like, like Baltimore, who has an absolutely stacked farm system, and they're really start, starting to show uh, progress on the field. You know, I can see the argument for grabbing a, a guy like a Brooks Lee, who could potentially contribute at the big league level as soon as 2024. But I think in most cases, for teams that are middling, um, and, and that's you know 90% of the league in terms of their development competitive window. I think you just take the best player available and a big component of that is not only the best player available, but the best player that you think your player development department can maximize. And I think that's, that's one thing that's lost on a lot of teams. Like there are teams that are just good at things that others aren't. Seattle's great at developing pitching. Tampa's great at developing pitching. Atlanta, they can do a little bit of everything. Philly cannot develop an outfielder. So I think you kind of go towards what your strengths are and uh, you kind of forget about the competitive window aspect of it for the most part. I think that's very well said and it's a great point. And that got me thinking about Colson Montgomery. And, you know, you think about in the immediate sense, well, the White Sox have Tim Anderson. So why are they drafting Colson Montgomery? Well, because he's a great product. 
How do you feel about the pick and the way he's developing and the way the White Sox have gone about developing middle infield just overall in their system? Colson Montgomery was one of my top five favorite picks from the 21 draft. I thought he fit the system really well. I think Chicago does a good job of developing hitters. I don't think he's going to be a shortstop. So the fact that Tim Anderson is there is kind of moot for me. I think he probably fits better on the left side of the infield, a third base type. Um, Maybe you put him in left field. I've always thought that he had the makeup and the tools to be a Matt Carpenter type of player in Matt Carpenter's heyday. I love the bat speed. I love the frame. I think he's going to be a really good player, really mature kid as well. So to to answer your question, yeah, I, I thought Chicago checked a lot of boxes really well. They picked, you know, arguably the best player on the board. They picked uh, a demographic that they've proven they can develop and uh, they picked an athlete. And, you know, Colson was a three, three sports star. And I think that goes a long ways too. So that's what keep you know I keep coming back to with the Tucker Tolman thing and look I've heard that it it could be a little bit expensive but I mean I think it's splitting hairs I think the the slot at 26 probably gets that done I would think but I don't know if you remember you know I know you were all over the Garrett Crochet pick and we talked like that day but you know Mike Shirley like I had heard like a lot about Tyler Soderstrom like that week like that was like the prep hitter that he really liked and who knows? Like with the White Sox, you never know who's making decisions. Like ultimately they took Garrett Crochet, right? But it's only two drafts, but if it's, you know, he liked Tyler Soderstrom and they took Colson Montgomery. Am I crazy for just thinking like, Hey, like I'm just going to trust Mike Shirley if he takes a prep in the first round again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think Mike Shirley has necessarily done anything to dissuade the fan base from thinking that he can't evaluate talent and, and take good players. I think Mike Shirley is really good at what he does. Um, the Garrett Crochet thing, I was actually a huge fan of. I, he had the best arm talent in the class. Yeah, it was a little funky, but when he was drafted and, and what the White Sox were doing that year, it was very clear he was going to be used uh, that September and October. And yeah, he's run into some arm troubles. And I think a lot of people kind of expected him um, to run into arm troubles on the on the scouting side of things. Um, but he provided value immediately. And we're too far down the rabbit hole now to even experiment with him being a starting pitcher. So um, my general talent philosophy these days is I think there's a ton of a ton of value in multi-inning relievers with huge stuff. And for that reason, I can't fault the the uh, the Garrett Crochet pick. And uh, frankly, I, I thought the Colson Montgomery pick was excellent, too. So. You know, I, I think there are some like if if Shirley were to pick Landon Sims this year, that would make no sense to me because for a number of reasons. But there there are so many good players in this draft that offer something just a little bit different than the other person that I don't know how anybody's going to be disappointed with uh, whoever their team ends up with, to be frank. Yeah. So, I mean, we've heard some of the same stuff with college pitchers and like the White Sox in the past, like way, way past, like they took a lot of like they didn't really take big stuff college starters. You know, they, they took a lot of like the, the safer guys. And and I kind of feel like Shirley has shied away from that. I think if they go with a pitcher at 26, that's where like you mentioned Justin Campbell. I just, I don't know if they would do that. I feel like it would be like if Connor Prelip got there somehow, I think they'd take him. I just think like they're all like taking super high upside arms and something Mike Shirley said last year that was kind of funny is he said you know it was just tough to scout college pitching because they all look like relievers because everybody's just like airing it out constantly so I just think Mm -hmm. it's like something that they look they're they're very like traits based right now that's why I think like 26 is just so interesting because I don't think it's going to be one of these perceived safer college starters but you know I, I I like we've like we've indicated, I don't always know who's making the pick in the White Sox front office. Yeah, I think the White Sox want another thing they're really good at is developing huge stuff and, and turning it into usable, you know, starter traits. Michael Kopech, they've been patient with. They've used him in a number of roles, but he's obviously thriving uh, now that he's worked his way into that rotation. Dylan Cease, they've turned into a monster uh, and the list kind of goes on and on. Yeah, there, there's been some guys that haven't quite reached their ceiling. Ronaldo Lopez hasn't hasn't gotten there yet, but he's been a valuable contributing member of that of that team. And, and there are some guys that I think make sense in that regard to to Chicago. I, you know, I heard I I had heard Walter Ford attached to the team in like February and March, but that never really made sense. Now, 
if if Chicago were to draft a guy like Walter Ford, I would think that would be an excellent landing spot. And I think that's a lot of what they saw in Jared Kelly, you know, a guy that throws 98, um, but you got to kind of polish around the edges. So yeah, I mean, guys with huge stuff, there's a lot of them. Uh, I, Walter Ford certainly makes sense. I think uh, with their second pick or maybe even their first pick, I don't know. Peyton Palette, big curveball, big fastball, big spin rates. Like that's the type of arm that's going to be healthy for Chicago, uh, you know, in the very, very near future. If, if they went that direction, it's probably a guy that they could really maximize. But yeah, like, you know, would it stun me if they went with Blade Tidwell and, and tried to do it with him? Not at all. But I, I definitely agree with you. I've, I've just heard Justin Campbell because he fits around that slot, but I think Chicago would do do well taking a pure stuff guy over a polished type. So I want to take you back to Kumar quickly. You know, it's one of the most interesting stories. I kind of feel like they're trying to turn this thing into a TV product, and for that to work at all, I feel like they're going to need Kumar to go. It's It's been super interesting. Do you think somebody kind of does the crochet thing with him possibly? Like if it's like a a Phillies or, you know, a contender that takes him and gives him 3 million or whatever. Is he in a big league bullpen to end the year? That's a good question. I, you know, talking with different evaluators and cross checkers and, and, and some different front office types guys, like the league as a whole, like is pretty black and white, like pretty 50, 50 on whether or not Kamar Rocker is a starter. Um, the medicals are I, I've heard some teams like it. They they are okay with it. It's not that bad. And I've heard other teams that are like, yeah, that's that's a little bit too iffy for for me to touch with with three or four million bucks. So, do I think Kamar Rocker fits into a bullpen immediately? I think he could. I definitely think he's got big league stuff right now. And and I've been saying all along, if the health you know record checks out and he's able to pitch innings this year, I'd throw him into Double A right away because I think he can compete at Double A and I think he can get a lot of outs. Do I think he is going to pitch in a in a bullpen this year? Probably not. And and the reason I say that is I think whoever does draft him probably has to be cognizant of the fact that they've got to use him with kid gloves, at least at the beginning, and le- at least until they figure out exactly what they have medically. So my gut would say he's not going to pitch this year in a big league bullpen because at that point, you're just throwing caution to the wind. And I you just can't do that with three, $3 million. Joe? I don't know if you're still keeping tabs on a local product here in Chicago, but Ed Howard has had a rough go of his professional career. He's out for the season this this year with a hip, and it's just been disappointing because you know we saw the talent in high school. He lost his senior year in 2020, but um, like I said, it's been frustrating for him. Are you concerned about Ed Howard's future at all with the Cubs? You know, I, I'm actually not. I know that people have been down on him but I think it's still a strength thing. I think it's just Ed Howard needs to get stronger. You know, he still has the lean frame. Like he still has, I think he's leaner than Christopher Morrell. And Christopher Morrell is another Chicago guy that is, he's very lean. Um, I think Ed Howard needs to develop more bat speed. I look at his profile and I, and I see, you know, he's not striking out, but he's not really getting a lot of luck with balls in play. He's not really impacting the baseball. So I still want to see how he develops. The defense has been fine. The range has been fine. When Ed Howard was drafted, I didn't really think he was ever going to be a star type of shortstop. I I always thought he was kind of smooth. I thought he was a gap to gap type of guy. I didn't think he was going to be a 25 home run guy. But, you know, I think if he can kind of straighten things out a little bit with his health and uh, get a little bit stronger, you know, put on 10 or 12 pounds and and really uh, get some of that bat speed. I think he still has the potential to be a 270 guy that hits 15 to 20 home runs and, you know, is a top half of the league shortstop. And the most important part of all that is a big league shortstop. If he can buoy at big league shortstop, he's going to be valuable, but he's not a star. And I never thought he was going to be a star. So I guess in, in that regard, my view on him is a little tilted. Yeah, it's it's good to hear optimism because I like the player too. So that's good to hear. Last one for me, Joe. We we mentioned this a couple times already. How do you think organizations feel about where the draft is placed uh, in July? You know, typically, the All Star break is for executives to take a break, but now they're drafting. Does that impact the trade deadline? And does that impact prospects, college players, high school alike? God, yes. They 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 hate it. I hate it. We all, we all hate it. And frankly, you know, when it was announced, 
I was the guy in the corner that was waving the flag going, hey, this is going to give the draft a little bit more notoriety. It's kind of part of the festivities of the All-Star game, yada, 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 yada. I could not be further from that angle than I am now. What it's turned into, I think, you know, I think Rob Manfred and, and the guys that make these decisions, I thought they would think this was going to really make the draft a, a marquee event. But what it's done is it's kind of buried it under the showcases of the home run derby and the futures game and the all-star game. And now it's kind of playing fourth fiddle in a weekend that is already packed with stuff. And so not only does the draft not get the hype that it used to, at least in the casual baseball fan you know, community, but the trade deadline is now muddied by an all-star game that is, you know, a week and a half before the trade deadline and you know front office guys especially on the on the operation side you know assistant general managers I don't know too many general managers but AGMs they hate it because they have to put all this time and analysts too they hate it they have to put all this time into the MLB draft and they really aren't given too much time to evaluate trades think about how they're going to improve their ball club and this draft is going to end they're going to have you know eight or nine days to sign these players and they are they're also going to have like 10 or 11 days to make trades and, and improve their team so i think it's fun i mean for the sport there's so much going on in this two-week block that they've created but i really do wish they'd space it out a little bit because especially for someone like me on the on the evaluation side and, and all of my guys that are out in the field taking video and stuff like we have perfect game national taking place the day after the draft so not only do we you know, have to shift into 2023 mode, like as day two is going on, but it really inhibits our ability to cover one or the other. We can either write about 2023 and perfect game national and what we've seen and how we evaluated these players, or we can write recaps uh, on how the teams did and the best fits and things like that. So yeah, man, I, I mean, to answer your question again, in a long winded way, I do wish they'd move the draft back to that, like June 12th, June 15th window, because it was just it got to live and breathe on its own, and then we could evaluate the trade deadline, um, you know, in a vacuum by itself. Yeah, glad you said it. I hate it. And, you know, with, with what we do, too, I mean, we we need to talk to people. Like, we need to talk to Mike Shirley and some of the, and they're just, like, super busy. Like, they draft, and then, you know, they're working on the 2023 draft, and also... Like with the White Sox last year, like a lot of their beat writers didn't cover it because they take off for like the all-star break. So then it's like nobody's covering a draft that we're we're trying to cover, you know, on like a, a blog. And it's just harder because like you you can't even like talk to anybody. This draft is just like going on. So yeah, I yeah. uh I hope it changes, but you're right. I mean, Rob Manfred wanted a wanted a TV event and it, it's just it's just never gonna happen. I mean, it's it's not the NBA or NFL draft. It's, it's, yeah. you know, for us, I mean, for I, us, it is, I love it, but it's not for everybody. I mean, I think, I, I think it could, uh, you look at some of the investment, like ESPN is, has re-upped on airing the draft every year, moving forward for the next several years. MLB network is really leaning into, uh, having a live draft for day one, two, and three. I think that's really, or day one, two, and then day three is streaming on, on MLB.com. I, I think, the, the general interest, especially in the baseball community, as data has come out for these draft eligible guys and bloodlines have really blown up the event. I think the event could be a marquee event. It'll never be the NBA or NFL draft, but I think it could be a huge, you know, anchor to the MLB season. But this week is just not the week to do it. And and to your point, I mean, we're going to L.A. for Prospects Live we're, and Seattle is my where I'm from next year. I, I I literally have to choose, do I go to the MLB draft and cover it in, you know, in the conference room, or do I go to the futures game? Like, I can't have both. I mean, as a baseball writer, with all of these marquee events happening in my city, I can't do both. That sucks. And uh, I really want them to change that in some way, shape, or form. Because you're right, for the beat writers, there are teams like the Yankees that have multiple players in the futures game. So they're just not going to be at the draft. That's 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 brutal. Yeah. So, you know, closing this thing out with you, there's, uh, you know, th there was a lot of talk early with the White Sox and and like Drew Gilbert of Tennessee. And, you know, he's kind of been a lightning rod. And I've heard from fans like, oh, I hope they don't take that guy because he's annoying or whatever. 
is there any chance he's going to get to him? And do you think they'd still do that if he did? Yeah. And I'll go on the record and say, I think that 26 is probably the floor for Drew Gilbert. I don't know. I mean, he's, he's been attached to teams in front of the White Sox, but nobody's really kind of, you know, planted their flag uh, in that player. I mean, uh, I think Philadelphia makes a lot of sense. I think Oakland makes a lot of sense. I think Toronto makes a lot of sense. Um, I even think Seattle might have some interest um, if, you know, things don't break their way at 21. But I would have a really hard time seeing a guy like Drew Gilbert fall because Mike surely likes polished college bats. I mean, that's been evident in Madrigal and, and Vaughn. Drew Gilbert has a really good hit tool and he's got big raw power. Uh, and I'll just say this really quick, just because I, I think it's, I don't know. I don't know if lazy is the word, but he's not Adam Engel and he's not Brett Gardner. If he's anything, he's a, he's a quicker Cole Calhoun. There's way more juice in that profile than Adam Engel or Brett Gardner ever possessed. So yeah, I think he could move quickly. And, you know, I, I look at this, this White Sox organization and they desperately need outfielders to play the outfield with other outfielders. <laughs> so yeah, and he's a Midwest guy too. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, like they love, somebody told me, uh, like a better Adam Eaton, but like he has more power than that. I've never understood that. I, I mean, Drew Gilbert has legitimate plus raw power. It, I mean, it is real, real, real bat speed. Um, maybe he tones that down. I, I don't know if people are looking at the box scores and just seeing how many home runs he hits and goes, oh, it's never going to be a big part of his game. I think Drew Gilbert's going to get to a point in his career where he's really understanding what's coming and he's going to turn and burn on some pitches. So uh, I think he's got a great shot to be a guy that, you know, flirts with uh, 2020 or, or 15, 20 and, um, you know, can hit 260, 265 at either the top or the bottom of, of a lineup. So I really like the Cole Calhoun uh, comparison personally for myself uh, with a little bit more uh, ability on the base paths. That's Joe Doyle of Prospects Live. Follow him on Twitter at Joe Doyle, M-I-L-B. All right, who are the White Sox taking? Give me a guess. Oh, geez, you guys are going to put me on the clock right now? Please do that. Oh, man. Please give us the correct answer. All right, so last year I was way more comfortable with where I think they were going to go everybody this was. year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this year I'm not as comfortable. I ultimately think they're going to go with a power arm and it's probably not a name that you guys have heard attached. Uh, I will say Gabriel Hughes of Gonzaga. I think he's got the power breaking ball with the high spin rates and a fastball that's been up to 98. I think that's kind of that clay that you like to see. And he comes without the risk of arm injuries that have burned them in the past with crochet. So Gabriel Hughes is my pick uh, at 26 if the draft were today, July 8th at 3 o'clock. All right. I'm a big fan of projectable starters. Is that a starter, I'm guessing? Yeah, oh, I yeah. think he's that. A, he's a better athlete for sure. I think I think that fits. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate your time. All right, guys. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, like I said, you guys do great work. Keep it up, and uh, we'll see where Chicago goes next week. That was Joe Doyle filling us in. Pretty much everything, James. It was interesting to hear college pitcher going to the White Sox there. I'll take it. You know how I feel about pitching. I wouldn't mind it. Yeah. You know, I think it's, I guess, the way that I would lean just because, like, there's so many of them. Whereas, like, I think if it's a prep hitter, it's Tucker Tolman. And I think if it's a college bat, it's Drew Gilbert, right? So, like, I feel like Drew Gilbert won't be there. I feel like if Tucker Tolman is like, I, I still think that's the pick. I think that's what they'll do because they could go college pitching throughout. But if he's gone, mm-hmm. I do think it's college pitching and there, there's just like a lot of options too. So, yeah, it, I think that's, that's an easy one to just say, Oh yeah, they'll probably end up with college pitching. Okay. And he also mentioned that he believed Colson Montgomery is ticketed for third base and potentially left field. I mean, it's it's interesting because we get various perspectives on Colson Montgomery's status as a shortstop. And it was interesting to hear Joe mention that he saw him as a third baseman in the future, at least to me. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of went that way, like around the draft time, they just see how big he is. And they're like, he's going to play third, right? And we talked about this a lot last year. But I think everybody we've talked to since has kind of said that he's been good. Keith Law has written him up twice in the last week at The Athletic. He he went and saw him. He said he was awesome defensively. And he actually thought that with some of the Futures game stuff, too, he thought it, he thought it was kind of a disservice that he's not there. So, yeah, I, I just think Col- like a lot of people have said like they think Colson's going to stick at shortstop. We'll find out as he you know moves through the system. He's at high A right now, as everybody kind of knows, I think. 
That's James Fox. You can follow him on Twitter at JamesFox917. I'm at Rankin906. Thanks so much for your support. Follow us on Twitter as a group at Future Sox. Really appreciate you listening to this episode of the podcast. Before we let you go, James, you and Josh and Jim over at Sox Machine will have a live draft show July 17th as the White Sox pick number 26 in the 2022 amateur draft. Also, our next podcast is going to be a react show. I think we're going to have a couple treats for you, the listener, because it's going to be a busy, busy couple of days as the White Sox uh, go through three days worth of draft picks. So James, we'll have a react for the listeners while there. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we decided what we're going to do two shows that week just because, you know, Major League Baseball kind of did this to us with the All-Star game. And, you know, Sunday, (laughs) Sunday night we'll have you know, we'll have the two picks and then there's eight more picks on Monday and then, you know, the more picks on that Tuesday. So, yep. Look for us like me and me and Michael break down uh, at least those first few selections and then we'll try to do a draft recap for you later in the week too. hopefully with Josh and Allison alongside. Looking forward to it. And man, uh, Joe did not hold back about his feelings related to where the draft stands in July here over the All-Star break. So that's interesting, but really good stuff as always from Joe Doyle. We love talking to Joe from Prospects Live. Be sure to follow their content. They are as good as it gets when it comes to scouting and their personalities are typically on the money when it comes to evaluating these players. So hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you enjoy listening to the Future Sox podcast every Tuesday. Catch us next week as we get ready for another White Sox draft class, the third from Mike Shirley.